Hey, welcome to the Delayed Gratification Podcast. I am super excited about today's guest and today's topic. As you know, we get started with the, the famous question of what is delayed gratification to you? So I want to turn to my special guest. What does delayed gratification mean to you? Delayed gratification in the context of business or work or personal professional development, rather, I would think uh, delayed gratification is doing some things or doing something to prepare um, you to be able to do greater things later. So um, I guess a more specific example would be uh studying, getting education, being educated, um, learning your craft, practicing your craft, honing your skills so you can be able to perform later and therefore, you know, get the gratification you want, whether it's in terms of money or status or clients or whatever the case may be. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. So can you tell us who you are a little bit about yourself? <laughs> My name is Aisha J. Thomas. Um, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, here in Atlanta, Georgia. I've uh, been in Atlanta for eight years, and I've uh, have a brokerage in Detroit and Atlanta called the Thomas Agency. And I also recently, in the last two and a half years, started a law firm, AJT Law, where we specialize in commercial real estate. We're experienced, responsive, and we add value. And we do a little bit more than closings because I know everybody associates real estate attorneys here in Georgia with closing attorneys. So we do a little bit more than that. So I want to jump right in. You have a lot of initials behind your name. M.A., <laughs> uh, J.D., mm-hmm. and C.C.I.M. And S.R.S. and H.C.C.P. And no. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's a lot. It's yeah, a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. I'm a nerd. I own that. You're a brilliant nerd. <laughs> right. But here's here's one thing I want to ask you. It took you a while to get those. And yes. for each one of those, did you feel some kind of way? Did you understand how difficult it was? What did you feel when you received like each, the JD, the MA, the and you named some more, the CCIM? Well, um, in terms of undergrad and grad school, school always kind of came easy to me. But law school definitely was a challenge. I was not at the top of my class in law school. Um, I was a repeat bar taker. So what, what, that was a definitely a What delayed. does that mean? Repeat bar taking. You took it more than once. <laughs> That's what it means. <laughs> but you, you know? kept going? You didn't yes, quit? I okay. did not quit. Um, so when you finally got it, how did you feel once you finally passed the bar test? Well, the bar part, exam? Well, well, part of me, at first I was like, well, maybe this is God's way of telling me I need to just focus on the degrees and and, and the skill set I have, and this was just something I don't necessarily have to practice. Because when I went to law school, I didn't necessarily um, want to be Olivia Pope or, 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 you know, be in the courtroom per se. I didn't want to be a litigator. So I only wanted to get the education to assist me with being better in real estate development, commercial real estate, whatever the case may be. But however, as I look at those six-figure student loan debts, I'm like, I might as well get a return and um, some of my colleagues and classmates who were practicing talked about some of the benefits, even though they weren't even necessarily <clears throat> practicing full time. They were they discussed the benefits of actually having a, the license and the opportunities it can bring. So how I felt when I finally passed, I was uh, relieved and kind of like, OK, now what? <laughs> you know, after you, you focus so long on just 
getting um, meeting a goal, and especially if it was a more of a challenge, it definitely delayed a lot of my gratification because I spent, you know, a lot of time studying. I missed out on a lot of trips. I missed out on uh, some, quite a couple summers, you know, um, family get gatherings, all of that. I was the person who didn't come because I'm like, okay, I got to study again. So finally, once that happened, I was able to, it's free. I was free. <laughs> <laughs> so I started traveling. I started uh, showing up, going places, everything again. So that I guess that's the perfect example of delayed gratification. So how long have you been in the real estate industry? I've been in real estate for 21 years. Wow. Um, I got my real estate license fresh out of undergrad in 2001 and uh, got licensed in California when I moved to California in 2013. And then while I was there, I got licensed in Georgia. So um, been in real estate for quite a long time, started with boutique organizations, never really worked for those larger brands or um, I've always worked for um, smaller companies with, you know, where you can touch and learn directly from the owners. And, um, I really just kind of always did real estate on the side, no matter what I, if I happen to work another job, I've always just been involved in real estate. So you're licensed in three States. Right. So that's Georgia, Michigan, and California. California. Mm -hmm. Why those three? Well, I'm, you know, started in Detroit, Michigan. So, um, Michigan specifically had, you know, I came up during the crash era. So back then you could sell 40 houses and only make $500 <laughs> on each one. <laughs> so it was definitely quantity over quality back then. Um, but it gave me some invaluable experience in terms of what REOs, foreclosures, all of that kind of stuff. Um, California is because when I um, graduated from law school, I got into a real estate development program at USC, I ultimately ended up not doing it, but because I was going out there, I just wanted to have that under my belt as a way to generate income once I moved there while I was in that, that program. Um, but I ended up working for one of the largest asset management companies in the world, I dare to say. Um, I think it's PIMCO back then. Um, mm -hmm. So when I was there, that turned into different experience, even though the real estate license per se didn't assist me with the job it was still just an added credential that didn't hurt and then of course when I decided to move to Georgia uh, Michigan and Georgia has reciprocity so it wasn't hard that's a big word what does that mean they accept each other's <laughs> license yeah, I, mean, I mean we just you, don't know what those words mean you, you know? know what it means <laughs> <laughs> so so now you've been in Georgia about uh, eight years and one thing that I can say is I, I admire you because you are part of a very small percentage of people that understand commercial real estate, but you're heavily involved in commercial real estate. So what got you into commercial real estate? Well, like I said, when I, um, I'm sorry, when I got to California, I went out there specifically to do a real estate development program. They changed the parameters of the program and I'm like, well, I can't afford to be in California and not work a job and need every week off. Um, so I ended up not doing it and got into Project REAP. Um, REAP started in New York in their nationwide program. And I did Project REAP out in L.A. where we 
um, met with Westfield, Simons. They were the people people who worked. What is REAP? What is Project REAP? Because I know real estate associate program. So it's ProjectREAP.org. Right now, I think they're doing online stuff, but it'll probably go back to in person. But Project REAP was instrumental to my commercial real estate career as well as, well as several other uh, minorities and that work for McDonald's, Lowe's, um, Home Depot, real estate departments. Because back then. They used to, they didn't promise you a job, but they would prepare, pair you with potential organizations. So I could have probably worked for, um, I think it was Home Depot or somewhere, not Home Depot, but another larger company, but I wasn't willing to move to Arkansas. I forgot who's based in Arkansas, Walmart. That's what it was. So a lot of people who went through REIT worked for Walmart's real estate department, which was a great experience. But at that time I wasn't willing to move to Arkansas, but I was like, I'm going to Atlanta, though. It's <laughs> a good place to go. It's a good place to go. We're glad you came. So is REAP focused on minorities? Is there a program yeah. for minorities? Yes, to okay. expose minority professionals. So you can't come in there with, you have to already have a degree. Um, you don't have to have any other qualifications in terms of real estate, but you, at the bare minimum, have to have a bachelor's degree. And that was instr- instrumental to my exposure. And what REAP did was open my eyes because most of us only think about commercial real estate in terms of selling buildings, Mm -hmm. but there's so many different avenues and facets of the business that you can get into from being an analyst, of course, legal, um, property management, asset management. So there's a lot of other um, avenues that you may have never even considered. And for me, it was about exposure. It's like, Hey, I'm grown, grown and had never heard of some of these positions. So I know kids in their, in high school and early college years, definitely didn't wouldn't know about it because a lot of us who already had degrees, some people were engineers, doctors, chemists, everything who had an interest in uh, commercial real estate, um, of course, business people, and, and a lot of lawyers too took the program. But um, it was instrumental to the, just exposing us to what was out there. So, so you went through Project Reap, right? And then what? What next? Because you're really like heavily involved, and you really like promote being in commercial real estate? Right. Well, because I learned this being in REIT that commercial real estate is less than 1% women and minorities. So when I did total, total, yeah. so 1%. And that was probably back in 2013. So I don't think that 1% has changed. It might be two now. So you mean men, women, all minorities, 1% less than we're going to come back to that. Cause we got to figure out how do we change that? But I know, I know you got some answers for me, but I want to hear how you got to where you are now in okay. the commercial real estate space. So decided to move to Atlanta. Well, before I even moved to Atlanta, they have um, used to partner with the International um, Conference of Shopping Centers. So they would have this huge convention in Vegas where the REAP students could go for relatively low prices. And I went to my first ICSC and was blown away. And it had never seen anything like it. There was probably, you can count on one hand how many People of color were there. It was like just a sea of others. I mean, but I mean, you were in there with sheiks and people who own malls in Dubai and they're walking around with security. So it was it was very eye opening to see how elaborate, you know, these million, multi-million dollar. um, And this is where they came to make deals, basically. And so even though, of course, I wasn't there making any deals, but just seeing it, absorbing it and and getting the exposure was key. And that's where I met people who were part of the REAP alumni from Atlanta mm-hmm. in Vegas. So when I said, hey, I'm moving to Atlanta, they're they like, okay, well, let's let's exchange information. Hit us up when you come. And that's how um, 
once I got to Atlanta, I stayed involved with REAP and on some committees and helping interview people, reviewing applications for locally um, with the partnerships that we have here and help try to um, get more partnerships. Um, I've also hosted some classes um, through REAP as far as on the legal side, the legal seminars. And um, really, that's just kind of how I got going. And it's not easy to get into commercial real estate. I've interviewed with some of the bigger companies. And I mean, I've had some people outright say, oh, well, you got to have this. You have to have CCIM. You have to have that, which we know is not true. You really, as far as on the brokerage side, you really just needed a license. But there definitely were obstacles. So, I mean. What kind of, what's what's a big (laughs) obstacle that you have had to overcome uh, in this space? Well, I think the obstacle for most minorities is not having the network. So, um, when you're dealing with commercial, you know, usually you got to know someone. I don't, I don't know many people buying office buildings or apartment buildings or, um, selling them. So that's where the disconnect comes in. Cause you can go through all that training with some of the larger well-known companies and they'll say, well, call your friends. I remember I was at a country club. <laughs> I was at a country club in in Orange County, and a guy asked a younger broker asked a question to some older brokers like, "Hey, how do I get more clients or something to that effect?" And the guys on the panel said, "Well, you know, when when you're at the club, you know, ask your father's friends or your friends." And I'm thinking, the club, not the club I go to. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They, it's that network. Yes. And that's where a lot of us are going to not have that advantage. So for me, I have to be a little bit more creative. And that's one of the things that attracted me to Atlanta because it's home to the largest amount of, um, one of the largest amount of growing women and minority businesses, especially women, black owned women businesses. So I'm like, okay, I think Atlanta would be more amenable to business compared to my business than staying in California. Mm-hmm. And so I came here with the goal of meeting uh, other women in business and trying to cater to them. And then of course, you know, anybody else along the way, I'm not going to turn it away. But that was the, the initial thought was that because there are so many small black owned businesses here. I wanted to assist them with their real estate needs and make sure they're not taking, being taken advantage of when it comes to leasing or acquisition. So um, a lot of times we all start working out of our house and we're just so excited that somebody lets us get in their space, whether it's an office or retail, sometimes they, people been signing anything. Ooh, so, so, so <laughs> now that's a, now this is a big one. This is a big one because I'm going to come back to like moving forward, but part of your growth is you have helped countless people with their leases, mm-hmm. uh, get into commercial leasing. We're not even talking about purchasing yet, but leasing. So many people make like crazy mistakes yeah. or they don't want to pay someone like you who deserves it because you save them like their life. You save them thousands, if not hundreds of thousands based on a lease. What do you think prevents us from one um, seeking our help, professional help when it comes to like signing leases Mm-hmm. Uh, and then how expensive is it if I just want to bring you on to review my leases? Like, is that really expensive? Well, to answer your first question, why people maybe don't feel the need is because especially when you get business owners or entrepreneurs, they feel like, well, I negotiate deals every day. Mm-hmm. I can negotiate my lease. And, and they're under the mindset that doing it themselves or somehow save 
them some money or possibly the owner or the, the landlord some money. So therefore they'll maybe work with them better. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is most landlords and their landlord representatives, they're in this, they do real estate all day, every day. So they have an advantage. Their leases are going to be written to favor the landlord. And so a lot of times I've had people come to me after they've tried to do it themselves and they'll say, <laughs> These people, they don't even call you back, you know, let alone get to the negotiation stage. I've had several people say they've called commercial brokers, and that's another story where they don't. And that that goes for residential agents, too, where they'll call commercial brokers and they can't even get a call back, let alone get to the point. of. So it's a difference in residential and commercial agents? No. Yeah, absolutely. Really? Yes. Did okay, you? we gonna we yeah yeah yeah. But but let's go back. Let's go back to this leasing part. Right. I, I mean, I I really want to know. I mean, a lot of us because lately I've been hearing like every agent I meet, they're like, yeah, I'm a commercial agent, right, or a commercial broker, and then I ask them questions, and then, but that's a whole nother topic. Well, people want to do commercial, and you can't. I don't. I don't knock that. No, no, I, I don't mean, either. We all have to start somewhere, and the only way to do it is to actually get practice, but. The issue is a lot of people jump in without actually educating themselves mm. because there's so many, it's different terminology. Because um, you can hurt your client if you're, absolutely, especially I, like reading those leases. So you got like a superpower. I'm going back to those leases. Mm-hmm. You have like a superpower in being able to read leases and represent folks. I say that. Right. But- if y'all watch, listen, listen, y'all. Okay, if y'all, if y'all are watching this, make sure you reach out. <laughs> if you're getting ready to lease a space, reach out to Miss Thomas because she does have a special touch when it comes to leases. But we're gonna get in it because I want to hear some Thank of those you. stories of where people maybe spoke to you mm-hmm. and decided not to use you or use your services or came to you after they signed the lease. Like, give me some, give me a horror story that you've heard about or been involved in. <laughs> and that burns my britches when. People come to me after the fact. A lot of times it's too late, you know. Um, only thing I can do is kind of help try to negotiate. But usually once you sign that contract, no matter how one-sided it is, you have the opportunity to seek counsel. And now, I mean, uh, a horror story is i got an example where someone came to me after they signed mm-hmm. and there is a delay on the build-out but on the landlord side. And, you know, they had all their, con- they were ready to go, had all their contractors, everybody lined up. But because we look at seven months later, the landlord hasn't turned it over. Now, of course, the costs have gone up. They've lost contractors. You know, they had a grand opening plan. They had all this, these plans <laughs> and they still don't even have the building. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we want to get out. And the landlord's like, no, because guess what? The way it was written, it really did, had no deadline. And it had no uh, ramifications on what happened if he didn't turn it over. So what would you have time. done in that situation if, if they would have come to you? And this is putting on your, so would you have on your attorney hat or your commercial broker hat? Well, it depends which one you want to pay for. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> you know, to be honest, I probably make would make more money as the broker than the, as the attorney. Um, if you... I usually try to draw a clear line of delineation so you don't get a two-for-one around here. If I do represent someone as an agent, I still tell them to go have an attorney outside of me 
review the contract just to make sure there's no conflict or mm-hmm. they don't say, oh, she missed this, da, 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 you know, and you're an attorney too, so you should look that up. You're not going to put both of my licenses at risk. So I always refer, if I'm acting as an agent, I act as an agent, of course I'm going to naturally do some things or be able to spot some things that maybe someone else wouldn't because I am a lawyer, but I do draw a clear line. So for instance, in that instance, where if the person would have came to me first, either as an attorney or as an agent, I would have said, hey, this really doesn't have a timeline. So guess what? It's something called a work letter where you can be really specific on what happens, what kind of damages happens if he doesn't. And then the final outcome could be, you know, this, this lease could be rescinded if mm. it's not. But it was no language like that to protect them. And pretty much the guy like, yeah, you can get out the lease if you pay me for two years worth of rent. Because normally commercial <laughs> leases are three to five years or, yes, or could be longer. Minimum, yeah. minimum three to five, you know, uh, and preferably longer um, if you're some kind of larger brand or the landlords prefer longer leases, especially if you want them to spend some money. So if you want them to do build out or contribute to your build out, they're usually going to want a longer lease and um, higher deposits if you're not a credit worthy um, tenant. So, so to answer your question, (laughs) (laughs) there are, um, I can give you many stories like that where um, somebody else, another person came to me after the fact, um, signed a lease and didn't check the zoning. Mm. You know? So you do that? No. Okay. If I'm acting as an agent, but that's still basic stuff because they did it on their own. They mm-hmm. didn't even know to check. They just saw it's commercial. But we all know that just because something's commercial, it may have limitations on the type of business that can go there. So have that particular person signed a lease, went to go get the permits to start building out, and, oh, your business can't go here. Can't put a funeral home there. Right. <laughs> can't put a hair salon here. We, we blocked it. The city had some kind of ban, but that those are small details that if she might have had a buyer's agent, they could have assisted her or at least reminded her, check your zoning before you sign this lease. And so it took all, she was paying rent for a year. Before she found it out. No, before she could actually, she had to go petition the city okay. and okay. go through a long process. And we know how that goes before she could even start building out, let alone move in there. So, so one of the takeaways from this is, you know, as we are building businesses to build wealth, to get income, we need the right representation. representation. Both. We need a commercial broker and, and a commercial attorney. attorney, not just a closing attorney. Right. Not somebody that's, and again, the closing attorneys are normally transactional here. Right. I know when I first started doing business outside, I was always looking for like a closing attorney when it was a title agent. So mm-hmm. there's some different languages, but we definitely must, you must have a commercial uh, real estate attorney and a broker that can represent you. Don't try to be cheap because you're going to lose out. And I know I've seen you grow clients. So from that little space to like humongous spaces, right? Uh, You got some, some, you know, we don't have to name everybody, but you got some clients that have went from basically 50 square feet to 50,000 square feet. Right. right? So you, you understand it to that level where you can start with me from now and over the next couple of years as my business grow, you can get me larger and larger spaces to lease or to purchase. Right. And one particular client, I'm so proud to be a part of their legacy, but you know, they started in the basement, the mama's dining room, the mama's attic, out the trunk, 
then she actually, this per, one particular client, went to look at space on her own. Mm-hmm. But before she signed it, she called me. And I'm like, ah, no, let's find something else. Because she uh, almost, you know, she was in such a rush. Why? Why did you stop her from that one? It was only 2,000 square feet, which she felt like, I just need to get out my house, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but the terms, the terms of it, um, the information, it was just, it, the contract was just a bad contract. It had... Um, I can't remember. It's been quite a while, but the point of this story is that she started at 2000. We found a different space. She went from 2,500 square feet within a year. She was at 8,000 square feet. And then within another year, she's at 20,000 square feet in two years, in two years, her business scaled, kept scaling. And, wow. and I just saw a post where her, one of her um, employees was like, I think we run out of space. She's like, don't say that. And I'm on the post like, are you? <laughs> <laughs> we just got in here. You know, it was it, it was a mess. It was a lot of work. But, um, and it wasn't that it was challenges financially or anything like that. It's just negotiating and, you know, people doubting a minority business. Like, how can Why? this... How can this little girl get this so, 20,000 so square foot space? We we had to overcome a lot of that, you know. So so you you think it's still because of the color of our skin? We still oh, having challenges? Absolutely. I've I've seen people. I've had clients who've been in business for five six years, good financials, and owners are still say they want six months deposit stuff like that. You know, and it's like why. On, on paper, they're great. Credit's great. Or um, I've had clients say they had call on a space and, you know, the 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 landlord's rep will ask them, well, what's the name of your business? Because hmm. they want to Google you, Yeah. you know? So they'll Google and look at your social media. Oh, we don't, you know, they, all of a sudden they don't want that kind of business there. And, I mean, of course, landlords have the right because they want a certain tenant mix, but they're a lot of, uh, microaggressions and things like that that you have to overcome on top of just the basic commercial real estate real estate terms. So that's where having representation because it kind of helps buffer that, especially if you have representation that knows what they're doing. Um, where they like, okay, they can't just tell you anything. Because I've had agents say to me, "Well, what's your client's name?" I said, "Why is that relevant?" I'm just calling to ask you how much the space is. You know, what's the asking price per square foot? Why do I, why do you need to know their name? I said we may not even be interested in this space. So it's still it's still you know? racial and gender. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Discrimination. Let's just call it what it is. You know, that's what it is. And I mean, you can't focus on that because we all know green is a color they recognize. Most most people recognize, but even still. Regardless of how much money you have, you still can face some of those obstacles. And speaking of money, you also asked me what's the cost. Um, commercial leases can range um, between, you know, 10 pages like a regular lease and can be 80 to 100 pages depending on how much. So I do have flat fees or I could be retained on an hourly basis. So it just really Which hat? depends. Which hat? So I want you to as a as a lato- attorney. So, but as my agent, if you're doing it, you're going to review I'm, the lease. I'm going to review it, but however, I'm still going to refer you to get your own counsel. I got you. I right. got you. Wow, that's a lot. So <laughs> that's a lot. So I'm gonna go back to leasing though. A lot of us don't buy mm-hmm. because we feel like. 
the numbers are too big. I hear that a lot. Like I hear people saying, man, that's too much. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the cost of leasing, it's probably more expensive. Well, I don't say probably, usually it's more expensive because when you're buying a multifamily commercial space, you can use the other tenants if you're buying mm -hmm. to help qualify for it. Right. So what is the what have you seen with us leasing so much versus buying? Like why are we not buying more so we don't face all the discrimination of the leasing part of it? Well, as far as for on the commercial, when you're talking about retail, office, there's more things that come into play. So you, A, you got to have a representative that knows how to do an, an analysis to let you know whether for your particular business, whether it would be best to rent or to buy. But you can do that. Yeah. So, so. if I call you, I'm thinking about, I've been in business two years. Where, you know, the past couple of years, everybody's worked from, a lot of people work from home. Right. But we got some contracts, we got some money, we got great credit. I can then come to you and say, listen, I don't know if I want to buy or if I want to lease. Then what happens next? Well, you know, you would have to provide your financials of your business. And also, you have to also consider location mm -hmm. because depending on the type of business, the location may make it impossible for you to buy where you need to be, where your customer base is or or for instance, if you're in a um, product-based business, that means you may need to be in an industrial area. Mm -hmm. We already know the industrial real estate is through the roof. <laughs> so, so it's a difference in industrial versus commercial? I mean, industrial is commercial, it's a part but of commercial. these are it's different asset classes okay. within com gotcha. commercial. So there's industrial, there's retail, there's hospitality, there's office, then there's multifamily too. But my point is location, needs of your business, all of that plays in it. So you have to be a bigger analysis of your business needs because yeah, you can go buy a warehouse somewhere else that may be cheaper, but now it may hurt you logistically because you need to really be close as close to the airport as possible or as close to, I don't know, the trucking Wh areas. I don't is. know. It yeah. just really depends. And same with medical. Like I've helped up quite a few doctors who, Doctors tend to lease for a long time when they look back and say, gosh, I spent millions of dollars I could have bought. But on the flip side, they want to be where their customer base is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not easy to just pick up a practice if all your clients are older um, and in a certain community. Yeah, I could go get another building, but am I going to lose do, half my clientele? Do you charge for the analysis? Like if I come to you today, whether it's an age, well, I guess that, that is under the agent hat. Mm -hmm. Do you charge? Yeah. I do. I can do a consultant fee. This is just for analysis, not, and I do charge a retainer even as a broker too. Do you? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I charge a retainer as a broker because I'm doing that kind of stuff. Um, on the front end, and that's where a lot of residential and commercial agents, I guess, kind of bump heads because you'll get residential agents who will call commercial agents and say, hey, um, I want to refer you somebody, but can I stay in? Can you show me? And what a lot of residential agents don't get is that a lot of analysis can go in on the front end, whether it's what I said, determining whether someone should lease versus buy the finance. If they already have a building in mind, then yes. it's the financial analysis. Or if they're trying to sell, you got to do a financial analysis. And a lot of this stuff all happens before anything ever hits the market. Any contracts are signed. So you spend a lot of time and energy and in intellectual property doing this work that may not amount to anything. Cause I may do the analysis for you. And then you say, yeah, I think I'm gonna wait. And so I'm so that's, that's, that's a different charge than, so say if I come to you, I got a building, you do the analysis, 
right? Then I buy the building, but I've given you a retainer up front. Mm-hmm. Does that come out of the commission or is that a whole separate fee? The retainer is a retainer. It's not part of the commission because, okay. like I said, I may do all this analysis, this and that, and you never buy anything. So at least I got this. Not all brokers don't charge retainers. I do just based on my experience, um, just because I may put all this energy into doing this analysis to lease your building and then, I mean, to lease or sell your building and then you may determine, I don't want to sell it. Yeah. It's different. It's not the same as just pulling a couple comps off the screen and presenting it to the client. Like, okay, look, this is what's sold in your area. You basically just don't want nobody to waste your time. Pretty much. But, <laughs> but at least because, you know, once I do this analysis and hand it over to you too, you'll have it. Even if you don't use it today, you still have it for maybe future reference or to make your some gotcha. other decisions. So, it's a work product for sure. How did you, what made you start charging the retainer for doing the analysis? Cause at some point you wasn't doing that. You was trying to help everybody not being that 1%, <laughs> right? You had a car. I mean, you still fight that cause. Like you want yeah. more minorities, more women in commercial real estate. When did you determine, Hey, I need to start charging. Even if it's just 500 bucks, even because that's two, a lot of money. Well, because even though the cost of doing business, CoStar and all of these other commercial MLSs, if that's what you want to call them, databases, those can run between six and a thousand dollars, six hundred to a thousand dollars a month. And so, as a consumer, you only can probably access so much information without having an account, right? And if you just want a one time, you're gonna have to pay CoStar probably like four hundred dollars just to access it one time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had quite a few entrepreneurs who will say, Hey, I I need, um, (laughs) I'm looking for a space. Mm -hmm. You know, we go through the whole process. I give them a list and then it's crickets. I don't hear anything else from them, you know, cause then I find out later they go off and try to negotiate themselves and that's their prerogative. But they're not paying you. That's why you're going to pay me a retainer. You're going to pay for my list if nothing else. Because that list costs me. And gotcha. I know some people will say, well, that's the cost of doing business. But just from experience, usually you're going to get my list and so much more for that small retainer. So even if you don't ever lease or buy anything, you're still going to get have access to ask questions. Of course, the, the unattainable list that you only can see so much information when you go online, but brokers have different access. All that stuff costs. And so... You know, that's kind of the flip side when you're dealing with smaller businesses who may not have the funds or the capacity at some point. But also, I'm a small business, too, so I got to protect my interests as well. And that's how I explain it to clients. And most people don't have a problem with it. And the ones that do, they probably not my clients. So so you've learned that over the years. It, mm-hmm. you, you, <laughs> some of that, when you first started, you got, I don't want to say burned. Mm-hmm. But you just learned a lesson. You use a lot of your time, which you are, you know, thousand dollars an hour, or uh, whatever it costs for your not a thousand. <laughs> no, man, I was wondering. You know, thank you, thou shit. I started charging a thousand dollars. But so let's let's commercial real estate and that one percent. Mm-hmm. You said it hasn't changed in the past a lot. It's not five percent over Mm-mm. the past twenty years. It hasn't changed. No, a lot. No. Other than Project Reap, what can you do for those that want to join, get into commercial real estate? What are some of the barriers that you, that can, you can help overcome? I, I guess I'll say. I'm glad you asked. I um, created an ebook actually um, 
called Getting to the 1% in CR. And it's basically a resource for beginners. Because for me, I've spent the last 10 years, you know, trial and error, trying to figure out who, what, where. And my ebook is it's a really short read, but it has, it's a, it's very resourceful because in terms of it kind of, it compiles all the information I wish I had in one place. Like I learned a lot of stuff from this person, that person, that group, going to this, going to that. So I have to kind of just put it all into an ebook for someone who is interested in getting commercial real estate in terms of from the brokerage side. So, so that's why I've created the ebook. When did, when did that book come out? Came out like two years ago. Okay. Think so, yeah. Think about what. what give me like two, some snippets. Two or three. Of, give me some snippets of what's in it that will make me say, you know what? I'm an agent, and I really want to get in commercial real estate. I want to be, I want to make that one percent be two percent at some point. What are some of the things in there that will help me go from being a traditional agent to a great commercial agent? Well, one broker? of the things is, as we all know, real estate is relationship based, right? So remember when I spoke about earlier how. Even agents will say, I've called, and those people won't even call me back. Um, Because I'm CCIM or because I'm active in the commercial board, which Atlanta has the largest commercial real estate board in the country, by the way. Um, Because I've been active and I show up, I volunteer, um, my calls get answered maybe probably a little bit more than they probably would have when I first started. Um, or I've had, I've emailed some agents in other cities and states about property. And I've literally had someone call me or text me, call me or email me back. And they actually, well, I emailed them. They called me back and said, hey, I, I just see you have CCIM too. I was what is CCIM? I'm trying to figure out who you were. And what I'm like, that? oh, so that's the only reason you called me back? <laughs> what is, what is, I know we're talking about the book, but what mm-hmm. is CCIM? Because I'm going to come back to the okay, book in just a second. CCIM is a certified commercial investment member. Yes. Um. It's a certification through um, an organization that's the CCIM Institute that's affiliated with the National Association of Realtors. So it's a, the price of it can range. It depends their scholarships and all. But I think when I did the math a few years ago, when you take all the classes and pay for everything, it was minimum seven grand, okay. right? Um, but the classes kind of start you from everything from financial analysis, market analysis, all the things I've talked about. It, um, now, you know, and it's some commercial brokers who do not have that, um, don't feel they need it because they've been in the business so long. But if you're, if you're someone who does not, cause you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm not, I don't have a background in math and finance and, and, and analyst type stuff. So I needed that extra to ensure that I'm able to analyze this stuff correctly for my clients. So took the time and the resources to actually get the certification so and was it worth it yes really yeah all the studying yes definitely all the traveling yeah it's it's definitely worth it because like i said for for just that reason alone when i emailed somebody about a property they called me back because they were just curious like who are you you know it's like a special club y'all in that club that i had the same thing they had okay and you know from a being a black woman I just also made a point to make sure no one could have any excuse not to let me in the door because I have just as much education, all the certifications, just as many years of experiences as others, you know, because like I told you, I think I interviewed for one bigger company and the guy looked me in the face and said, you know, I typically hire 
um, young people right out of college. Mm. And, you know, you're a mother. Um, you don't have CCIM. Even though I had a good 15 years of real estate experience in general, they don't count the residential stuff. Um, so he, he threw the CCIM barrier in there when really he probably didn't even have it. Correct. <laughs> you know, so that kind of triggers something in me. Okay, so I have that. Now what? <laughs> you know, so that, but now I'm not even trying to apply to work for others in that capacity anymore. But it's just that I didn't want to, no one could ever say I didn't have the credentials again. So, so, so you have worked on these credentials for the past, I'm going to just say 10 years, really hard. Um, is it getting you in more doors? Is it worth it? All the stuff that you, do you feel like, is it getting you in more doors? And are you able to help more people, minorities and, and women? I wouldn't, I would say it gives me more access to information. Right. I don't know about doors per se. Um, because once you have certain qualifications, you get, you know, part of certain listservs, mm -hmm. um, you know, industry newsletters helps you stay abreast. So that in turn helps me better serve my, my clients, whether they're small business owners. So I would say yes, because the more, um, educated I am increasing my skill set that can only benefit my clients. Yes. So I wouldn't necessarily say it just open doors where, Oh, welcome. Come on in. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if that didn't happen. You know, you still have to, like, we know it's relationship based. So, um, you still got to go out here and network and make relationships. And, and, and I realized too, no matter how many rooms I walked into where it was only a couple of people of color, a lot of times I can have as much education, everything, and it'll still be like I'm not there. When you say people of color, do you mean black people? Because I see a lot yeah, of okay, black people. Then. Okay, Let yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's be straight no. up with this one because yeah, I see a lot of other nationalities like do, well do very, very well in the commercial world. Like, yeah. we, well, too, that's the networks, too, because, you know, my, his, my Asian sisters and brothers, usually they have a network of people who own businesses, right? usually have money to bring that they're bringing over here to invest. Okay. You know, so that those are things that a lot of times we don't have. So, okay. When I'm the one of few black people in a room or African Americans, whatever you prefer, it doesn't matter how many qualifications I have. Sometimes it'll still be like I'm invisible in some of those rooms. How does that make you feel? It used to piss me off, <laughs> you know, but then I realized like, okay, well, why am I trying to even, why are they the standard, you know? So mm. why am I trying to fit in or be invited to the table? So that just made me focus on um, building my own stuff, catering to the clients who need me. So whether the, and I mean, I do have clients that, who are Caucasian, of Asian. Yes. I have clients of all nationalities. However, you know, I, I didn't set out, to think that once my business attracts those th those people, it's great. It's gonna do better. No, it's it's gonna. My goal is to attract small business owners, no matter who their nationality is, who usually are gonna be at a disadvantage when it comes to purchasing and leasing real estate. So I love it. I love it. So let me go back to the book. The book is a way for us to get going, get into the one percent, right? right. What else in that? Give me something in that book that says, you know what? I need to go out and buy it today. 
I can't. I told you it's a short read, so I can't tell you too much. <laughs> I can't tell you the whole book. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, listen. I we mean, need to know well, because what, well, one of the tips which I started to say was about volunteering. That is, mm. a, it's a chapter on volunteering. I've done a lot of free work, whether for organizations or for specific people. Um, and you know, you don't always do things for return, but also I did things to practice my skill set without it putting anybody at risk too. So if I made mistakes, you really can't be mad at me because this is free. you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whereas, you know, so it was an opportunity to practice what I've learned by offering to help um, nonprofits, for instance, that had a portfolio. So I did some analysis for them for free. And now five, seven years later, that same nonprofit is one of my brokerage and legal clients. And I've sold, most of their portfolio legally, I've helped them close and um, clear title, all kind of stuff for the, their remaining portfolio. But that was a seed that was sown just from me responding to an ad for volunteering. And I, this is what I can volunteer. So really, you got a little gratification by going to volunteer, but a lot of it's coming now. Um, years later. Years later, you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta be patient. Mm-hmm. You gotta be patient. So you are. Financially wealthy, but one of the biggest things is um, your relationships. You're very, very like, like you. What would we call it? Is that human relation capital relationship wealth? Yeah, but but it's that's where a lot of your wealth comes from because of your relationship that you've built over time. Mm-hmm. Great, good, great, great. I, I love I it. I had I had someone a colleague, I guess, kind of former friend, I guess, kind of make a statement to me before, like, you're always in some class. You're always at some event. You know, you need to focus on getting some money. You know, why you always? And I had to explain to them that, you know, I'm making deposits right now. Um, And so when I eventually did open my law firm, I have all these different people from different organizations, classes, everything that now I can reach back out to say, hey, I'm, you know, these are my services now. Keep me in mind, you know, because I never wanted anything from them initially. I still don't. But it's just now they know they know me outside yeah. of me just trying to solicit their business as an attorney, as a and we can't solicit like focused that. on real estate. What are some of the services that you offer? OK, so, of course, um, like I said, we focus on commercial closings. Um, lease negotiations. You'll do residential closing. I'll do too. residential okay. too. Yeah, All absolutely. Right. Um, but my niche is commercial, just right. to differentiate myself from my peers. Um, leasing, lease negotiation, contract drafting, contract review, land use and zoning. Um, so if I come to you and I got some land, you can take me through the rezone as a developer. Mm-hmm. You can. Uh, I'm zone residential, but I want to go commercial or whatever it may be. Right. You can help me from A to Z. Yeah, get your okay. variances. Um, that also do mediation, arbitration, real estate related, um, foreclosure work. Even though I'm a housing advocate, <laughs> so that's a touchy, <laughs> that's a touchy spot for me. But I do have a background in foreclosures and mitigation. So um, I'm, I'm not going to just outright say I only do foreclosure defense. I'm, I'm open to both sides. However, it is. Kind of 
you know, sticky for me because I am a housing advocate as far as affordable housing. But um, I do know how to do foreclosure, so I'll just leave it at that. A um, lot of interpleader work. Um, I've done a, some commercial landlord tenant work. I don't enjoy it that much, um, but I still do it, you know, here and there for specific clients. But um, the main thing is the transactional representing clients with their lenders, drafting lending documents, uh, advising. So I do a lot of that with clients, uh, nonprofit clients and, and for-profit clients who have large portfolios. So you're like the, you hate to say shortcut, but instead of me going out trying to figure this out on my own, uh, losing a bunch of money, all the headaches, I can just come to you and cut all the headaches out. Well, we can definitely minimize them. Oh, so, I, so I'm still going to have some headaches. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I'm keeping real, you know. Where it'll be, I'll just take on the headache for you. That's Thank what that, you. that'll Thank be, you. you know, but it'll still be present. Maybe just a lesser, smaller headache, it'll, not a migraine. You said something. I'm going to have to get you back on. Um, you talked about affordable housing, and we won't talk about it today, but I definitely want to bring you back on and talk about affordable housing, affordable housing development. Um, before we go, um, give us one piece of advice, like commercial real estate. I, I mean, like you are the cheat code to being successful in commercial real estate, um, taking clients that are new business owners from 500 square, from their living room table um, to the dining room table to whatever size they want to grow. So give me, you know, how do I get there? Like, is it don't happen overnight? I know you just had one client that went from two thousand to twenty thousand square feet. What two is years. the norm in two years? That's 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 amazing. She's a unicorn. She's bad. She bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> give give in a us good way. <laughs> give give us a piece of advice on you know how do we get to be that one percent or make that one percent two percent. Um, the main thing would be is educating yourself. Uh, I think that's probably one of the most important aspects of whatever you're deciding to do, but especially in commercial, because it is different from residential and you can have many years of residential experience, but it definitely won't be as respected when you jump over to the commercial side, because it is different is different asset classes. There's different, um, you know, different needs of the industry, because if it's more industrial, then you got to think about environmental and all this other stuff. So I would say that if I could tell somebody the one thing they should do is to get educated. And how do you do that? Resources, mentors, volunteering. Um, and you got to make that financial and personal investment of time to learn. And a lot of times the people who probably can show you, they're going to probably want to charge you. And you can't be offended by that. Or are they going to want a piece of your deal? That's going to be the other thing. Like, okay, I won't charge you, but I want... 50% of what you're doing. So, you know, but it may seem expensive initially, but it may be invaluable. So um, I wouldn't necessarily write that off right away if that's one of the only ways you can learn. So I would just say being educated would be the first step because if you're not, you can put your client's business at risk. It's not just that one deal. A bad real estate deal can tank a business. So good, good, good. how do we get in touch with you? Well, <laughs> you can go catch me on IG, Aisha J. Thomas, or my website, the same, www.aishajthomas.com. 
and that'll link you to all of the other um, resources, books, articles, um, of course, the AJT Law's website and the Thomas Agency's website. We'll all be there in one spot. Thank you for being on. Listen, thank you thank for y'all me. for watching this episode of the Let Gratification Podcast. If you're talking about commercial real estate, this has been a great conversation. Make sure you go follow her, like her, share her stuff, and make sure you use it if you need those services. Again, y'all like this, share it. We'll see y'all next time.